welcome to Alco Farm. I am your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Alco Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, East Tennessee State University. It's a beautiful fall day, first uh, uh, week of November. I'm going to talk about uh, a seminib. The first, uh, or you know, maybe the most exciting drug approval uh, in my standpoint in a while. So, uh, a seminib, a drug that's been around for a while. Uh, brand name here is Semblix. Um, it's approved on October 29th for CML, and there are two approvals. So the first approval is for patients with CML uh, chronic phase who have previously been treated with two uh, or more TKIs and for patients with CML who have the T315I mutation. Now we'll see that there are different doses, whether you're on the, uh, the T315I mutation approval or the other approval, higher dose for the T315I mutation, which of course confers resistance to all the other CML TKIs except for uh, ponatinib. Uh, this approval is based off of two trials, two different populations, the prior after two uh, TKIs with no T315I mutation, or the T315I mutation. Uh, assemble is the approval for uh, the, the first indication and then cable 001X2101, which sounds like a rocket ship, is the name of the study for the T315I mutation. I won't get a whole lot into the efficacy here. I, I will get into it a little bit here. So um, in, in Assemble, they're looking at NMR major molecular response, so more than a, a three log reduction in B-cerebral transcripts compared to bosutinib um, in patients who had two or more TKIs, 500 bosutinib, the right dose for, for patients with prior TKI exposure. MMR rates were 25% with aseminib versus 13%. That's at, at 24 weeks, about six months. Um, longer follow-up to see how long and durable those are and you know, really do we prevent progression to accelerate and blast crisis, things like that, overall survival, that, that good stuff. Now that study, as, as, as stated in the PI, and I'm pretty sure this was presented at ASH a year, maybe two years ago, uh, they did 40 milligrams twice a day. And that's important because the, the labeled dose for Seminib for the, for the approval after two TKIs is 40 BID or 80 once a day. So there is, you know, you can do 40 once a day or 80 once a day, but they did 40 once a day, you know, in this, or 40 twice a day in the study. So I would lean towards doing what they uh, of course, what you know, what they did uh, in the study, um, the uh, the T315I mutation uh, MMR at 24 weeks was 42%, which numerically is higher um, than um, the easier indication. Now they are given a lot higher dose; they're given 200 twice a day for the T315I mutation compared to, to 40 twice a day for the post two TKI comparison. And that MMR uh, at six weeks or six um, Six months, 24 weeks was 42%. It trended up to not, uh, to 49% um, by 96 weeks, a little under two years. So it did get a little bit better over time as far as that major molecular uh, response rate. Okay, so Asimitib, as I mentioned, a drug that has been around for a while. Uh, we're gonna talk about the the, um, the mechanism of action here. I do, I forgot to look this up. So I'm gonna have to do that thing where I shuffle my papers here. Um, I meant to look this up. I was curious what the, the half-life is for this. Um, but while I, while I look to find that, let's talk about the, the mechanism here, because this is a, a different mechanism of action than other BCR-able tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, 
think about, uh, are you familiar with Transformers? And if not, if you're not, you know, if you're riding on the, on the bus or something or, or the train, uh, you know, Google Transformer, the toy that I used to play with uh, as a kid. Um, I like to think of BCR Able as, as kind of like a, uh, a Transformer. So a Transformer, you know, the ones I played with as a kid were nice and tightly packed and it looked kind of like uh, a cassette tape. And then it would unfold into, you know, like a, a tiger or something like that, or, or some sort of crime fighter, or some sort of criminal, depending on good guys, bad guys. I think that's that's my uh, remembering of this. So you may be thinking, where is he talking about Transformers? So think about BCR, uh, BCR Able, right? So you have uh, the, the Philadelphia chromosome, part of chromosome uh, nine, um, changes places with part of chromosome uh, 22, so you end up with BCR breakpoint cluster region uh, attached to able kinase, which is is a tyrosine kinase. All right, so able kinase is kind of like you know normally like this transformer. All right, so it has an inactive state. That's when it's all folded up on itself, and it has a uh, the active state where it's unfolded and it's ready to, to do what it's going to do. Okay, so in um, in the Philadelphia chromosome, we have a mutant gene that encodes for a mutant protein, and this mutant protein will not close. It's always in the active position. It's always open, ready for business. That's what causes CML constitutive activation of able kinase because that BCR able translocation to the N terminus of this this protein. Okay. Now, native unmutated able kinase, that N-terminal region, uh, basically can, can fold in on itself and can go inactivated like that transformer all tucked in as a cassette. What a seminib does is it, uh, this is called an allosteric inhibition, which means it doesn't bind at actually the target site, it binds somewhere else that causes a conformational change that prevents uh, the action that we want to prevent. So in this case, uh, a seminib and there's a really great figure in the um, in the New England Journal Med of New NEJM Phase One study publication in 2019 of seminib. Uh, a binds um, basically um, to a different site from the the actual tyrosine kinase that we're inhibiting, unlike a matinib, dasatinib, etc. And what that does is it kind of locks in uh, able kinase in the inactive conformation, and that prevents BCR able from doing what it needs to do. So it it really favors the inactive conformation, which prevents the active conformation from doing what it's supposed to do. So imagine, you know, your transformer, it's all folded up, and the first thing you need to do is unfold that, you know, unfold the first leg or whatever of this transformer to get it to open up to be active. So a seminib kind of is like a wedge that gets in there and prevents it from opening up, and then that prevents uh, the, the propagation of, of signals via, uh, via able kinase. All right. So that's kind of what it does, and we've gone over what it's for. Now, now this is a drug that, uh, that's got a little stuff to go over. So let's go over the, uh, the toxicities, uh, and we'll, then we'll go over um, uh, a lot of drug-drug interactions. Maybe the key thing to take away if you're a prescriber, don't prescribe this to somebody without having a pharmacist talk to them or look through their meds. Lots of drug-drug interactions to consider that uh, as an early approval, uh, at least the... Um, after two TKIs, this is an accelerated approval, so we don't have great characterization of drug-drug interaction studies. So let's go through this real quick. All right, so 80 once a day or 40 BID. Half-life is like five hours from this. I finally found that. 
um, five hours if you do twice a day, nine hours if you do the once daily. So I guess you could go either way. Uh, I would maybe favor the twice day since that's how they did it in the study. Um, although somebody out there, there's a great research out there if you're doing a whole bunch of uh, a seminib and you're doing 80 milligram once a day, just a descriptive study of this is, these are the outcomes of 80 once a day in our patient population. You don't need a comparison, just you know how they do. Uh, just out there waiting for somebody to get like 30 patients on 80 once a day. All right, when we go into the, um, the administration of this, whether it's 80 once a day or 40 twice a day, or the high dose for the T359 mutation of 200 twice a day, it needs to be taken on an empty stomach. Taking it with food does, does decrease uh, the absorption and bioavailability. Uh, we've got a couple major warnings, precautions, uh, myelosuppression, both neutropenia and thrombocytopenia, maybe a little bit of anemia, anemia. Uh, median time to onset is six weeks, so very consistent with the myelosuppression we tend to see with other drugs for CML, where these folks have failed two TKIs or they have the T359 mutation, so they probably have, you know, quite a bit of CML cells in their bone marrow, and as that bone marrow gets replaced with healthy cells, you get some, some cytopenias. That seems to fit with that. Uh, dose reductions occur for A1, ANC less than 1,000 or platelets less than 50 you hold until things recover and then restart the drug. Median onset is six weeks, so you do a CBC per the PI every two weeks uh, for three months and then periodically thereafter. The phase one study uh, I mentioned earlier in NEJM from 2019, the dose limiting toxicity uh, was pancreatitis and uh, asymptomatic elevation in lipase or amylase. Uh, so pancreatitis happened in 2.5%, a grade three pancreatitis and 1.1% pancreatitis, not something to mess around with. Uh, asymptomatic or just any increase in lipase or amylase occurred in 21%. If those enzymes get above two times the upper limit of normal, you hold the drug until it gets down to less than 1.5 times the upper limit of normal. Hypertension was seen in 19%. Grade three only in 0.3%. Median time to onset was a little bit longer. It was 14 months. So it took a while for that hypertension to show up. Uh, strangely, hypersensitivity occurred in 32%. And this uh, presented, it seems, as rash, edema, or bronchospasm. Now, it was a grade three or more severe in only 1.7%. And if it was severe, uh, you would hold uh, or, or DC the drug permanently. Uh, if that hypersensitivity is persistent or reoccurs maybe persistently with rechallenge. Uh, in sort of shades of ponatinib, because you think, where would we really love to use this drug? People who are not candidates for ponatinib because, you know, uh, they have really bad cardiac disease, for example, with ponatinib, which is risk of arterial thrombotic events. Um, so there is a, a warning here. It's not a box warning, but a warning for cardiovascular toxicity, including um, CNS uh, events, arterial, uh, you know, ischemic cardiac events uh, in 13%, two, uh, in 13%, uh, cardiac failure, they call it in 2.2%. Now, grade three of those are 3.4% and 1.1%. Uh, and the PI does state that people who did have these thrombotic events uh, did have risk factors, cardiovascular risk factors, or had also been on prior TKI drugs. They don't say necessarily prior ponatinib exposure, but in future publications, hopefully that will be there. Also, some QT prolongation occurred in 7%, but the drug as a whole does not seem to prolong the QTC on average more than 20 milliseconds. I, based on that, you know, every new drug, they do a dedicated cardiophysiology study to see what the average QT prolongation is, and if it's less than 20 seconds on average, these 7% of people who had a prolonged QTC interval, I'm guessing they probably had some other stuff going on, whether other azolinifungals, 
uh, or perhaps electrolyte abnormalities like hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia. Okay, from another you know toxicity standpoint, it's a lot of what you would expect you know um, with with a, a drug like this in, in this class. I'll mention just a couple of them. Upper upper respiratory tract infections happen in 26% of people on the low dose, and 13% in a high dose, which uh, maybe is a manifestation of untreated CML or something like that. Not sure why that makes sense. Now, you do see uh, more musculoskeletal pain in the high dose. So 42% had musculoskeletal pain, only 22% in the lower dose. Uh, a toxicity we see uh, quite a bit with imatinib, for example. Uh, diarrhea is listed as one of the side effects, but compared to bosutinib, it has like no diarrhea. <laughs> you know, like 12% versus 71% difference in diarrhea. All right, now, drug-drug interactions. Lots of drug-drug interactions to consider. These are not very well characterized. So I, I go over this a lot when we have new drugs. You know, the way that new drugs are studied uh, clinically for drug-drug interactions, there's some preclinical work, and then they, they, what they'll do is they'll give one dose of one 3 or 4 substrate to see what the drug does to that 3 or 4 substrate. And they try to use a representative, like, 3 or 4 substrate, and that's, and that's midazolam. So there is an expectation if a drug increases the exposure of midazolam by a whole bunch, inhibits 3 4 and then we apply that to all other 3 4 substrates, okay? So, and, and there's a different probe, so to speak, for other, um, for other um, 3 4 or uh, cytochromes, for P450 cytochromes. All right, so um, it is a 3 4 substrate, um, asiminib, and also uh, glucuronidated by UGT 2B7, 2B17, but mostly we're going to talk about the, the P450 enzymes here. All right, so strong 3 4 inhibitors, this would be like clarithromycin. Uh, you closely watch that if you're going to be on a 3 4 inhibitor um, if they're on the, the high dose, and that's going to increase, we think, the AUC about 34%. Now, if you're on the lower dose, obviously people can safely, somewhat safely, take the high dose. So, you know, a one-third increase in AUC from 80 milligrams a day is not considered clearly significant in the eyes of uh, the PI. Interestingly, itraconazole oral solution containing hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin decreases the AUC by 40%. And right at first, I was like, what? There's got to be something else about this because itraconazole is a potent 3A4 inhibitor. It's a 3A4 substrate. So, how in the world would an itraconazole solution decrease the exposure of a 3A4 substrate like asiminib? So, turns out, it looks like hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin, which is an excipient in some itraconazole oral solutions, decreases the absorption of uh, asiminib. I don't know this for sure, but I know there is another study where um, uh, this uh, hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin decreased the absorption of a, of a investigational TKA called fenubrutinib, uh, which must be a, a BTK inhibitor. So it looks like this excipient hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin um, is uh, decreases the bioavailability of asiminib, uh, and we should avoid uh, asiminib with any, you know, oral solution that has hydroxybetalpropyl cyclodextrin. What all those other oral ones are, I don't know, but I would carefully look through any uh, any drug that uh, one of my patients were taking to, to look through the inactive ingredients in the PI to see if it has this hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin. Okay, next thing, certain three or four substrates need to be um, uh, watched for. So, um, a is a uh, is a three four inhibitor. It decreases the uh, the um, uh, the the AUC of um, midazolam um, by uh, twenty four to twenty eight percent. 
and increases the bioavailability of midazolam by 88% in the 200 in the higher dose. So uh, it says to monitor for adverse reactions for these drugs at the lower dose and avoid aseminib with three or four substrates at the 200 milligram dose. Three or four substrates, that's like half the drugs we take, right? So a lot of drug-drug interactions to consider. We also got to worry about aseminib as a 2C9 inhibitor. And we know this from uh, measuring levels of the S or super strong enantiomer of warfarin with aseminib where uh, the low dose 80 milligrams a day increased the AUC of the S enantiomer of warfarin by 40 to 50%, depending on the 40 BID or 80 a day, and increased the AUC of S warfarin by 314% at the 200 BID dose. That is a massive, that's a threefold increase of warfarin. So warfarin 5 milligrams goes to warfarin, well, S enantiomer warfarin, you know, triples. It's, it's AUC if you're taking it with this. So you have to avoid, the API says, avoid the use of a in all, at all recommended doses with 2C9 substrates, okay? With all 2C9 substrates, it doesn't say major 2C9 substrates because some drugs are primarily cleared by one substrate and partially cleared by another, partially hepatic, partially renal. It says all of them. So here are a list of some 2C9 substrates that are pretty darn common, and we don't actually have a dedicated drug-drug interaction with a seminib and these drugs that are 2C9 substrates. Clopidogrel, naproxen, ibuprofen, herbisartan, losartan, and maybe most common in, in a hematologic malignancy population, voriconazole. All right, so a lot of drug-drug interactions you got to consider with a seminib. Somebody please do do a study of a seminib with ibuprofen because people are taking ibuprofen all the time and naproxen and, and these ARBs, really common drugs that we need some dedicated drug-drug interaction studies for. And then finally, certain peak glycoproteins um, can also uh, have increased toxicity with a seminib as a peak glycoprotein inhibitor, although that doesn't appear to have been studied. So wonderful, accelerated approvals with lots of drug-drug interactions, uh, you know, poorly characterized. And uh, that's up to a lot of us as oncology pharmacists to, to help mitigate those and, and to, if we identify them after they've happened, uh, to publish those drug-drug interactions today so we have some evidence and hopefully somebody can do some of these, some of these studies and, and give us some clarity on whether or not you could you know, safely use a, an inset in somebody on a seminib, which the PI says to avoid. Okay, so that's a seminib, uh, a drug that I, I think has been eagerly awaited in the CML population. Um, you know, a little curious about this cardiovascular toxicity. We don't have a head-to-head -head comparison against ponatinib, on its surface seems to be maybe safer than ponatinib. That may be its niche. Uh, wait to see for future publications of a seminib, which if we're, you know, all kidding aside, if it were a spice, it would be cinnamon, a seminib. All right, thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetNib and follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoPharmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.